This is a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters for week ending Friday 3rd of April 2020. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. It is presented by Sarah Smith, Daniel Burt and Geraldine Hickey. Coming up on the podcast, you'll hear Geraldine talk about surviving a gas leak as well as her attempt to plagiarise a poem. Also on the podcast, you'll hear an interview with Kathleen Lee, who's the creator of the new web series Sex and Death, and you'll also hear an interview with author Vivian Pham about her new book, The Coconut Children. Katrina Sedgwick, the director and CEO of Acme, also joins the team to talk about what you can enjoy on Acme online. My name's Elizabeth McCarthy. I'm the producer of The Breakfasters and hope you enjoy the podcast. Melbourne's own Triple R. I went to, um, I spent the weekend in Venice Bay, um, which is when we go to like full lockdown, this is um, where I'll, we'll stay. Yeah. You won't have other locals there with signs out the front saying bugger off. Well, yeah, possibly. Like, Kath made the problem um, last night of um, being on social media and um, getting quite anxious by the time she got, wow. got into bed. But she effectively has lived down there. So yeah, she exactly. kind of is a local. Like, she's lived down there for periods of time. Yeah, totally. Just chop wood out the front. No one will bother you. Yeah, well, yeah. Because of the axe. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the choring. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you can see, um, you know, obviously both sides of, of the story of people being worried about their, you know, towns being taken over and and whatnot. But, um, you know, in terms of, you know, medical services and stuff, like we don't have enough beds in the hospital. It's like we're two hours from Melbourne. We'll go back to Melbourne yeah, to go yeah. see the doctor. So calm your farm. Um, <laughs> Literally. Oh, but also, you know. It's, but yes, I think Kathy is in that you know weird space of you know spending, um, you know splitting her time between there and 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 at my place. So mm. um, anyway, we were there uh, on basically any chance we can get to go there, we'll spend our time there. So we were there on the weekend. Uh, Kath had some. Um, she's still getting um, a few Airbnb people coming to stay. Yeah, right. Um, and it's – I know most people will go, oh, bloody holiday, mate, still taking their bloody holidays. And, and it's like, yeah, maybe, but also it's um, – most likely it's – like she's got someone coming this weekend who has got work for the first time yeah. in months and in in the local area. So it's like, yeah, you can you can come and stay. Yeah. So you can work, you know. Wheels of commerce. Yeah. Uh, what, and so is this a discussion that happens with – uh, people seeking places like do, do you have to give reasons usually no, or it just comes up no it just I think it just came up the um because yeah I think it just came up in conversation mm. between Kath wasn't like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> no nah, not at all um but uh I'll tell you what this last um these people that stayed um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, not like, you know, last week. Um, man, what a... First of all, Kath gets a message um, with a photo that just said, I'm so sorry, I burnt your kettle. 
And it, yeah, it was a photo of a, an electric kettle. On the stove. That, yeah, that had been put on the stove. Oh, no. Yeah. My grandma did that towards the end. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Excusable for your grandma. Yeah. <laughs> if it was towards the end. Oh, no. It's just like... With, it is a st- I, I find that so strange because my instinct would never be put a kettle on a stove. Yeah, I same. feel like that's from another era. Same. There aren't really stove kettles anymore. I've, I know there are. Don't text about it. But you know <laughs> I mean? It's mostly electric. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think that um, this person is uh, was from America. Uh, I've heard that they don't have kettles. Kettles aren't a thing in America. Well, yeah, cups of tea aren't that big a deal, are they? Yeah, they don't have hand hand can openers, just electric ones. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) My mum hung out with the Beach Boys one night. Cool story from when she was 16. Yeah. This this guy she was dating was touring them, and she spent this night with the Beach Boys just hanging out in the hotel. And she goes, this is her story when I was a kid, and I'd be like, what was it like? What were they like? She said, mostly quite sad and didn't want to be on the road. And I went, oh, that's depressing. And then she goes, and then... At one point, they wanted to own it, open a can, and uh, they were walking around the hotel looking for this can opener. And they kept saying, "We don't know how to open this can." And Mum got out a hand can opener and opened the can. For what them. out of a purse? Like, no, out of like out of a drawer because they, cause they, they didn't recognise it because they only have electric like they only have electric oh, machines wow. to open them, not hand. Anyway, that was really because you were it was the height of luxury if you had one of those electric can openers. <laughs> totally. Are they still a thing? Or well, in America they are. That's still like you wouldn't buy a hand. I mean, I, saw, I only have a hand can open. No one mm. has electric hand openers in Australia, do they? I, don't, I, I haven't seen one for decades. But what about an electric knife? Is that is that oh, 80s or is the that... The carver. Yeah, the carver. Is that, are we over, we're done with that, aren't we? I think oh, we're done with that. Yeah. Please bring it back. No, <laughs> don't be done with it. It was so easy to, to slice your bread with that. Yes. Well, it was It was just... Dinner was on the way when I heard that. But it's 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 weird. So it's, 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 it's weird to hear power tools in food preparation. Yeah. That's the only weird thing. I loved it. Mm. Uh, anyway, so guest um, put a yeah electric electric kettle on the stove, um, and so wrote back and said, "I'm so sorry, I've done this," and you know it was all fine. And then uh, when I I arrived like Friday afternoon, and I opened up the house, I'm like, "Oh my god, it stinks! <laughs> oh, right. It stinks!" And I just went, "Oh god, who would have thought that?" Putting an electric stove, electric kettle on the stove would cause that much smell. Like I just thought it was like burnt plastic, yeah. kind of burnt stuff in the air, and just didn't think too much of it. Just kind of like opened up the doors and turned the fan on and tried to get this stuffy. And then I thought, because it's so stuffy in here as well. Like I thought, oh maybe she's left the um, left the heater on. I'm like, actually, there's no heater. It's a fire. Yeah. Um, so it was just like, oh, man. But had like this, um, had like one glass of wine and did a cup. We had we had that meeting and then um, like anyway, Kath arrived maybe an hour later and I'd had that one glass of wine. I was like, well, I'm on my way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Kath walked in. She goes, how long's the gas been on <gasps> for? Oh. oh. That's terrifying. Isn't it? Yeah, I didn't think too much of it. How did you not smell the gas? Well, because I, I did, but just it, there was so much of it that it had gone past that gas smell. Into something else. Into like, oh, what is this? This is a huge fear of mine because I always cause I get scared of gas leaks and I always think, no, it's okay, I definitely smell it and I definitely recognise it. Like it'll be real. And now you've told me this, I think maybe not. Yeah, maybe. But also I, you know, you 
I didn't go in expecting to smell gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, because I, I knew about the kettle, I was like, I yeah. just kind of immediately went, oh, that's what it is. Mm. So the gas was left on by... The, the previous wow. like gas on the stove, like like is in the gas the outlet on the stove. Yeah. Oh. Just for for twenty four hours. Imagine if you weren't coming up immediately after that. Yeah. Or imagine if I smoked. Oh or shit. Imagine if like Kath was more concerned. Um, or it's, you know she was concerned about, about her house blowing up more than me. <laughs> I think. Um, but also. <laughs> She was like... You were in the house. So. I know. <laughs> but the, the other concern was normally I'd go and have a nap. Oh, my and if God. I, yeah, you know, it's a high possibility that I could have had, you know, wouldn't have woken up Are you surprised that you didn't smell it? I mean, the, they say one of the yes. symptoms is a lack of smell. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I smelt something, so that that didn't make me too concerned. Um, But, yeah, but I survived. um, Did you not put on the open fire then for the rest of the... Yeah, didn't need to. Thankfully, lovely weather and no need for the the fire. But, um, uh, yeah, just used up a, a lot of gas. But it's, and it's then right. I'd imagine you polished off that bottle of wine pretty fast after that. Well, yeah, got through it. <laughs> got through it. No problems. Triple R. Sex and Death is a new six-part comedy web series set in Melbourne that follows the romantic misadventures of aspiring actress Charlie, played by Kathleen Lee, who is also the show's creator, writer and director. Uh, The series draws on Kathleen's own experiences living with undiagnosed autism spectrum disorder and the actor joins us on the line now. Kathleen, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, Because people are looking for last wherever they can right now. What's Sex and Death all about? Um, well, essentially, it's a romantic comedy set in Clifton Hill. But as you said, it's about a quite a bad acting student in her mid-20s who basically everything goes wrong for her. Her, her boyfriend leaves her for her best friend. Her, she's got a crazy acting teacher who keeps humiliating her in front of the class. And she gets told off for eating her own food outside the local chicken shop. <laughs> um, but the weird thing is that all this stuff keeps happening and she really doesn't seem to mind. In fact, she actually drives her best friend's things over to her ex-boyfriend's house so that they can be together. So, I mean, how autobiographical is this? Well, the character is definitely me, um, but I've sort of played around with the the other people. There definitely, there's elements of people I know in all the characters, mm. but I've, I've, you know, created the, the scenarios. I've made them up to some extent. Some of them are true. <laughs> and what's the uh, – t- tell us about making it. And you, it's Kuehl Studios and, and you know, how, w- what's the process like of getting a web series off the ground? Um, it depends. This one was quite, quite a big undertaking because it's about an hour long in total. So essentially it's kind of like making a little feature. Mm. So I kind of tried for years to, to make it happen. And I'd sort of try and plant the seeds and it just, it just wasn't happening. I didn't have enough steam on my own. And then Tobias Willis, who runs Cool Production Company, um, came on board and decided to produce it. And then basically he just organised everything and then we, we had to do it. 
Does Tobias make a cameo appearance at the, in the first episode? Is that him in in the oh, class? Yes. He's yes, very funny. He, in fact, he's kind of a lot of people's um, favourite character is yeah. the feedback I've been getting. He plays – he doesn't have many lines. He plays like a weird guy who – he's in my acting class and he um, – he sort of just sits there watching the whole time and occasionally, quite often, we just cut to him randomly and, and get his reaction. And h- how do you play a bad actor when you obviously are seeking to be a good actor yourself? How, is that and, – and you're also directing your own bad acting. Tell us about that little alchemy. Well, that was kind of easy because that actually happened to me. So <laughs> I, I used to be good at acting because I used to sort of mimic other people, which I was very good at because I was – um, you know, I was masking my autism my whole life. And so my way of doing that was like mimicking other people. So acting used to be so easy for me because it was just like, oh, I'm just going to completely be this other person. <laughs> and then I started acting with this guy. And weirdly enough, the guy who plays my acting coach in the series is the acting coach that I base the character on. He's not as crazy as I made the character, <laughs> but he's, he, it's definitely him. Um, and I started acting with him and his whole technique and a lot of like advanced acting techniques is that you have to be yourself. And as soon as that was what I had to be, I just, I just had no idea how to do it because I had never been myself in my whole life. And so I was just terrible at it. And, and, you know, it was my biggest fear would, would be that people would judge how real I was being. And then all of a sudden I was being judged on how real I was. And there was a whole sort of classroom of people watching me sort of fail at it. So you were, di- you were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder after you wrote the series, is that right? Yeah, that's right. What was that experience like then afterwards kind of um, getting that diagnosis, I guess, in your 20s? Oh, well, it was amazing getting the diagnosis. I sort of, I was sick for eight years or something and I just had no idea what was wrong with me. And I, I'd try everything I could do to, to, to get better and nothing worked. And um, I realize now it was, you know, because I was autistic and I was trying to live like a normal person and do all the things that normal people do and I just couldn't do it. Do you um, yeah, sorry. watch back the series that you've made and look at it and just go, oh, my God, how did I not get diagnosed earlier? <laughs> um, well, actually, we shot it after I was diagnosed. Okay. Um, but I... No, I, I kind of don't because I guess it's hard for me to see. Some people say like, oh, you seem so autistic in the series. But I'm like, oh, I just, I just seem normal to me. To yeah. me, I just seem really normal. So it's hard for me to see myself like that. And then some people have said like some scenes are really autistic and I'm like, oh, that just seems normal to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and tell us about the cast that you, you've assembled. Um, well, playing the, my love interest, the weird guy from the chicken shop is, um, Jonathan Schuster, who's a local comedian, really, really funny. He's and he's brilliant in the role. Yeah. Yeah. I love Jonathan Schuster. I think he's really, really great in this role as well. Yeah. It's nice to see him in a, in a sort of romantic role. Yes. It's quite, it's quite, um, he does it really, really well, I think. Even if that romantic role is, role is weird guy at the chicken shop. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's quite suited to him. <laughs> and can you tell us about some of your comedy guiding lights as well? Uh, what do you mean? As in, my... you know, who you who you admire, or maybe who you used to replicate before you became yourself. 
Oh God, it's quite unfortunate because I grew up without a TV. So I I read back over emails I wrote when I was in school and I was mimicking like Jane Austen characters. <laughs> really, really embarrassing. And also Oscar Wilde. And I can't, I just can't um, understand how people were friends with me. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> I can understand it. That's beautiful. <laughs> I even talked in sort of a slightly English accent for a number of years. Very, very bad. But they are still my um, heroes. Oscar Wilde, I think, would have informed this a bit, yeah, how he has those sort of larger-than-life but very true kind of characters that are, kind of contradict themselves all the time. And I love that. And Jane Austen's like that as well. Mm. So. And while we've got you, how are you dealing with isolation? Uh, I have to admit, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you loving about it? I love social distancing I go for a walk down the street so even normally when I walk down the street I try to avoid being too close to other people because it's just a bit too intense and now when I do it they're avoiding me as well (laughs) so much easier I don't have to feel guilty about avoiding them I feel like I'm avoiding them and now I feel like I'm doing the right thing Beautiful. Well, Sex and Death is available to watch at sexanddeath.online. And uh, we've been speaking with creator, writer and director Kathleen Lee. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We were talking earlier this morning about... um, buying our first album mm. and first singles and, and whatnot. Uh, Daniel, his first single that he ever got was Don't Worry, Be Happy. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> Hang on. Let's yeah. just go back to Daniel for a second. Can you start whistling again? No, I'm not good at it. Yeah. What are That's you doing? what you picked up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, it's You're a using, makeshift whistle. You're How? using your tongue, aren't you? How did you... How is that the first song you ever owned and you didn't learn to whistle from it? That's such a great question. Yeah, I, it, it should have. I mean, I was four. I could barely move my mouth. Yeah, True. Fair mm. What are you doing? What yeah, are you doing with your mouth? Thing? Yeah, where's your what's your tongue doing? It's in this? probably too. It's maybe it's on the roof. Yeah, no, no, it's not meant to be there. Yeah, not no. meant to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think we've got a mission to make you whistle Me by the end of the year. It's, it's in the way you like your. This is my quarantine challenge. Yeah. yeah. By the end of the year, you need to learn, know how to whistle properly. If only there was a webcam in the corner of the room at home just to see me going nuts as I try to master whistling for uh, Bobby McFerrin. Uh, because the first album that um, I, I bought, um, I used um, – my sister had a, a voucher um, for brushes, brushes probably. Yeah. Um, was it for precious or somewhere else? Sanity, Sanity. even. Um, anyway, but I, she wasn't using it, and I kind of just, and it was about to expire. So I went, I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal this, <laughs> and I, um, that's what I used to buy. Um, Arrested Development. Anyway, um, but I was just because it just reminded me of um, vouchers, and I, I won a book voucher once in in high school when I was in year seven. Um, and I, I may have spoken about this before, but I will confess this again. Um, I did. I won a, a poetry writing competition, mm-hmm. um, and I. Congratulations! I, thank by the you. Way. Thanks very much. And I won. Yeah, like a, a twenty dollar voucher to buy books or whatever. Um, but I, I plagiarised the poem. 
Like, it wasn't my poem. Anyway, the end. <laughs> what, do you remember where you took it from? Yes, I do. Uh, so my uncle was a school principal at a, a school in Tasmania <clears throat> and we would get um, the the yearbooks from this school every year. And um, so there was – and obviously in these yearbooks there would be um, highlights of the year and, you, um, and it had contributions from students and there was a – one particular student had written a poem. Oh, you nicked it off another student? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even like a district. Well, that's why I knew I'd get away with it. Because oh. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, people wouldn't, you know, unless someone else knew about this school in Tasmania and had their yearbook, then I, it was, I would get away with it. And I did get away with it. Um, but it was this poem that... Um, Something about, and I think there was a photo that went with it of two people with, and it was just their shadow, and it was all about, you know, race in in that, you know, you can't see the colour of someone's skin if it's just a shadow, and I think it was just something about, um, you know, inside, you know, the heart is still red, and um, you know, everything, all, everything's the same. <laughs> On the inside. Anyway, it's very deep for someone in year seven, and I think they, they picked Jesus. up on that. Jesus. They're like this philosophical genius. Mm. Yeah, a little bit. And then um, – but I had to uh, – I then had to um, read it out at, at assembly. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> they were like, congratulations, you've won, you know, this poetry writing competition. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> and then they said, You'll, yeah, so we'll get you to read it out at assembly. Oh. Um, and mum was on tuck shop duty that day. And I'm like, if there's one person that will know, it, it's mum. Yeah. Because it's her brother that is the principal at this other school. It's, she would have she been the only one in the family that's probably read. <sighs> she'd be aware. And you think she'd also just maybe know what your poetry capabilities were as well and, yes. and be a bit sus. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> that, all of that. So it was... Ter- like, I'm nervous enough having to get up in front of the school and read out this poem that I didn't write, but also knowing that mum was going to hear it and not knowing how she would react. And, you know, so I, you know. It's I'd- enough to plan your conscience, enough to maybe come clean. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I. I um I did it. I got up and I read the poem oh, out, and everyone God, you read it. <laughs> clapped. And then um and Mum didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, this will be. I'll have to wait till I get home. This will be one of those moments. So you know, terrified. You know, you know, catching the bus home and getting home and just kind of bracing myself for it. And then Mum never said anything. She didn't realise. Nobody realised. Yeah. I got away with it. I took that book and I think I bought um, the book voucher and I think I bought some. I bought a Roald Dahl book. Um, Did you tell your mum later on? Nah. Yeah, mum, right. if you're listening, I, I stole a poem. <laughs> there was um, a, a – my I have a friend, Jono, who lives in Derby now and he's – I've just realised he's at the core of my two worst indiscretions in high school. One of them was plagiarism. I didn't plagiarise. He did. But he said, where can I plagiarise a poem? Oh. And I said, I don't know why, but there was a song called Astro by Neil Finn on his 1998 album, Try Whistling This. Oh, wow. Oh, the irony of Try, whis- try Whistling <laughs> This. <laughs> Never could. <laughs> Maybe that's why I bought it. Uh, 
Anyway, he, he used it, got away with it. And it's, I don't know, because I thought it's an obscure enough song at that time where yeah. no one would pick up on it and they, and they did it. Because someone else, oh. no one picked up on it? No. Oh, it's because someone else got away with in, in, in maybe when you were year, year 11, so we had to do like a creative writing thing in English and someone else had written out um, the entire plot line to Bad Boy Bubby. <laughs> no. <laughs> And I remember. So what a twisted <laughs> thing for you eleven to hand in. Yeah, yeah probably like, should have been rated more than R. It was like year year eleven. Yeah, it was year eleven. And I remember like everyone. I'm like, oh my god, this guy's written the most whack story. <laughs> and it was like it was all passed around. Like we all read it, and he got an, like an A plus for it, or you know, he got top marks. And we're just like, this is as he should have. It's a great <laughs> it's film. Great. <laughs> Which is like, this is unbelievable. But I just, I, I didn't realise until like two years later, like being, or maybe even like years later being at a video store and like picking up this video, just going, oh my God, that's. They made his, they made his essay into a film. Triple R. Vivian Pham is a Vietnamese-Australian fiction writer currently completing a Bachelor of Arts with a major in philosophy. For the last two years, Vivian has attended the International Congress of Youth Voices and shared a stage with the likes of Dave Eggers, who describes Vivian as one of the indispensable voices of her generation. Her debut novel, The Coconut Children, is set in the Cabramatta summer of 1998, and the author joins us now. Vivian, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Hello. How, how pleasure. Um, can you set the scene of the Coconut Children and tell us how the book came about? Um, so the scene is in Cabramatta, a suburb of southwestern Sydney, and it's set in the 90s. And it follows two protagonists, um, Sunny and Vince, who are both 16 years old. And they're, they were childhood friends, but um, when Vince was 14, he got into a lot of trouble, and the book begins when he returns from juvie. Hmm. And, and yeah. what, how, how much do you bring yourself to, to this book? How, how autobiographical is it? Hmm. I think that question's been asked quite often, and I feel like I don't get any better at answering it. <laughs> the, line, <laughs> the line between um, fiction and autobiog- autobiography has been so blurred for me like throughout writing it. And even now, when I when I reflect on the book now, I feel like there's such a there's such a distance not only between me and the characters, but the self I was when I wrote it and me now. Um, but I feel like a lot of the stories that um, are mentioned in the book or are the backdrop for the book um, I get from my dad and the stories that uh, he would tell me about his journey from Vietnam when he was seventeen um, on a boat to the refugee camp. Yeah. Despite the fact that I had a very different life um, to Sunny, the, the lead character mm-hmm. in the book, I found reading her interior life um, so <laughs> so familiar and almost crin- cr- maybe cringe because it reminded me of being, mm. uh, I guess, a 16-year-old girl and the, and the kind of the thoughts and obsessions that I would have. What was it like for you kind of getting into that mindset and, and exposing that? Because it, it feels very like you're exposing something that's very kind of close to the bone. Yeah, it felt like, yeah, I felt like I was exposing myself in a lot of the, in, a, in the way that I characterize Sunny and her like manic thoughts about, um, about the world, about the people in it, but just like the way that they reacted, react to her, the way that people react to her. 
I feel like with a lot of teenage girls, like the the thing that plagues our minds a lot is is this idea of desire and how our our worth as people is just like we just are constantly thinking of if we're liked and yeah if we're desired by the opposite sex or the same sex. So yeah, it's just really manic and psychotic the way that she thinks about um, the world and and needing to be to be liked. I also was thinking, like, her obsession with the character Vince, who's kind of, for lack of a better term, there's so much to him in this, but he's like the heartthrob, I suppose, in her in her <laughs> eyes. Um, and he's written in the way that I... Um, I, th- I remember seeing boys like that in my life and, and kind <laughs> of having those obsessive thoughts about him. And I read that you kind of um, maybe, like, cut your chops writing about... Um, writing about a character like that through writing Harry Styles fan fiction when you were a bit younger. Are you ever talk about that a bit? Because I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about that a bit. <laughs> um, um, so I feel like before I started taking, like, before I started reading like uh, James Baldwin and a lot of other writers I've come to admire a lot, I was, um, yeah, my main my main inspiration for writing was, one Direction, so I would um, <laughs> go on like OneDirectionFanFiction.com and Wattpad, and um, as a way of like fictionalizing a romance with one of the members. Uh, and yeah, so the way that I wrote about um, Harry when I was thirteen, in a lot of ways, mirrors the way that Sunny uh, sees Vince in the in the novel. And at the beginning. Um, at the beginning, the way she sees him is so, like, almost disfigured by her own obsession and her thirst. Um, and that's the way that I feel like that, that now, um, now that's really, that's really common for teenage girls to feel about people that they don't know. Because mm-hmm. I know that, um, being in a, in a girl's school, there weren't any, any boys for me to, to see the way that I saw Harry. And I feel like that's just become more and more common. Like girls these days are are pitting their obsessions on people that they don't know, like K-pop and just boys on TikTok as well. Just anyone but the people that are present in their in their actual lives. What's it What's it been like uh, getting a book out there and having people like Dave Eggers and Paul Kelly say nice things? Really nice. It's nice when people say nice. It feels it uh, feels a bit. Uh, surreal. I mean, I've been working on this since I was um, 16 and continuously working on it until like December last year. Like even um, the very last day before, like I worked, I, I, um, I didn't sleep the night that I was, the morning, well, you know, I was supposed to send the, the final, final manuscript in, 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 in the morning and I didn't sleep the night before because I was still like manically trying to write and I was treating it like it was like an assessment or something um, and I was leaving it to the last minute even even then but um yeah it, and and finally having it out now after three years of just feeling like it was my something really personal and in, intimate to me and having other people read it has been has been really crazy what what's the process like writing it like at 16 did you sit down and go I'm gonna I'm gonna write a novel or did you just kind of start writing like how did it all come about? Uh, in part, it was, um, well, for a large part of it was um, attending, like, these workshops at the Story Factory here in Sydney, who are um, uh, uh, an organization that help literacy, 
that, that try to improve literacy and creative writing in in the Western Sydney. And so every Sunday I would go to workshops and just, um, yeah, workshop my chapters. And, yeah, I would bring a new chapter in every week because I was so excited to write and to have um, Bilal and Richard and Allison these three like amazing people at the story factory read my work and be excited about it with me. Yeah. No, but other than that, sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, other than that, I was, um, I was running away from schoolwork in a lot of ways and just feeling like, um, in class I would be working on this and I, I dropped, uh, I dropped like my math class cause I needed a free period yes. to write. So it was just like, <laughs> It was just really, it was incredibly, I, I took myself really seriously when I was um, 16, and I took this extremely seriously as well. Mm. <laughs> How are your studies going now? Um, they're going good, thank you. Uh, I'm doing, my favorite class this semester is, well, the reason that I chose to go to uni is because I really wanted to do this specific unit called um, Postcolonial Literatures, and I'm doing it now, and it just happened that the whole reason I chose to do uni um this unit is now online, so that kind of sucks. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Everything kind of sucks now, so it's okay. I'm kind of interested. The, the picture you paint of Cabramatta and, like, the migrant experience, particularly the Vietnamese migrant, migrant experience in the kind of 80s and 90s in Australia is quite uh, gritty and real and, and dark at times. And I think sometimes that experience has been glossed over a little bit uh, and you don't get the development of um, people's individual stories as much anymore. How did you go about finding those stories? Because um, I guess you weren't living in, in, in Cabramatta at that stage um, in your life. Mm. You wouldn't have been born, I think. I'm trying to work out the, 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 the yeah, dates. No, yeah, no, I was um, – so, so the book is set in 1998 and I wasn't – and I was born in 2000. Mm. And I feel like that was a very – I don't think I knew it then, but it was quite a deliberate choice because setting it in a time before I was born felt like like in a lot of ways, it felt like I was having to invent a memory. And I feel like that's something a lot of children of refugees and migrants have to do in order to imagine the ways that they're connected to their culture. Like, I remember growing up feeling like I had this responsibility to reconstruct an entire civilization just to get an idea of, of how I fit into the world. So, yeah, just that idea of fiction and um, and trying to imagine imagine yourself and the role that you have in the world. Um, but in terms of the, the realness of the stories, um, I was doing legal studies at that time that I was writing it. So there were some criminal cases when we were doing like juvenile justice. And I remember constantly seeing, um, Vietnamese last names in the cases and the ways that the, the trouble that kids would get in the, the common cri- crimes that would happen around Cabra. So that already had got me thinking about what, what what was happening in in our community at that time um but other than but a bigger part to that is that my vince is actually based on well heavily based on one of my relatives who grew up in the 90s as well and the kinds of experiences that he had and the things the things that he's seen um yeah <laughs> well, all the uh, it's all there in the Coconut Children. It's out now through Vintage, and we've been speaking with author Vivian Pham. Vivian, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Vivian. Triple R.
We are living through unprecedented and for many overwhelming times, possibly feeling at heart a parent struggling to juggle working from home with keeping their energetic kids both entertained and educated in isolation. Well, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image is here to help. Its education team has stepped up to, prov- to provide free, fun and educational online activities for students of all ages. And on the line to tell us about it is Director and CEO of ACME, Katrina Sedgwick. Uh, Katrina, thanks for speaking with us. No worries. Good morning. Uh, morning. Are you yourself an example of the situation you're trying to help remedy? <laughs> I am indeed, yeah. I'm home at the moment with uh, teenage boys, although they're um, on holiday, of course, so not even thinking about education <laughs> at yeah. the moment. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big challenge, you know, uh, these uh, children who are now cocooned inside our houses. How do, we, how do we keep them entertained? And, you know, I keep thinking thanking whatever power there is for screens at the moment. I mean, the having children have the capacity to be able to, through their screens, communicate with the world, um, with their friends in such a kind of dynamic uh, social way is a gift, I have to say. Um, so the ideas of kind of limiting screen time have shifted somewhat in our household mm. um, over the past week and a half. Um but alongside that, of course, is how do you then steer your kids into um, creative, um, playful ways uh, that are going to stretch them a bit sort of intellectually in their skills um, alongside, of course, the, the homeschooling that's about to descend on us all in a week and a half. Yeah. And, and so what have you developed? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, Acme, you know, we've been going for 18 years and as a as a museum of the moving image um, with a really strong education program, we've we've always been super interested in how we can support um, teachers and students to be able to learn how to use these amazing um, digital tools that we have creatively to tell stories. Um, so it's a program we've we've run for many, many years. Um, and consequently, we've got a, a fantastic range of resources that are online, that are free, um, that children, parents and teachers can access at any time. And they range for students right through um, primary school into secondary school. And indeed, there's lots of things in there that I think adults themselves may be interested in. So I'd encourage too that um, parents, when they're thinking about using these um, items, really think about learning along with their children and I think they'll often find that kids will be teaching them um, how to how to um, harness this this kind of amazing technology. I'm glad you've said that because some of the options available made me a little bit jealous. <laughs> well I mean the reality is look we've we've all got access to these tools and you know we're all going to want to be able to share stories with friends and with family um, over coming months and how we do it is around making films, making games, storytelling through the screen. And um, I think there's a, a great opportunity for us all to stretch ourselves. And what a fantastic way to fam- for families to come together um, to be able to, you know, use these these toolkits to teach everybody. Um, because it's not just, of course, about the technology itself, which so many children intuitively are able to understand. It's how you then layer those kind of storytelling skills on top of that. So, you know, it's multi-layered literacies, if you like. There's there's literacy around the digital technology itself. Um, and as I say, 
you know, many children, most children, primary school, secondary school are, you know, extremely um, gifted in being able to kind of navigate um, new challenges um, and new opportunities with that technology. But but I think where parents can come to the fore is helping children with that other kind of literacy, which is, you know, putting a story together. How, how do you tell something with coherence? How do you harness the imagination of children and ourselves to communicate through the screen? And there's so many different ways you can do it. You can do it through, you know, live action storytelling, be it a documentary or be it drama, um, comedy, um, then, of course, there's animation and there's so many different ways to use animation, um, digital animation, but also wonderful kind of analogue animation. We've got these beautiful um, resources online that um, we developed when we worked with the Aardman Studios. Now, you know, Aardman are leaders, the leaders globally in claymation. Wallace um, and Gromit. Wallace and Gromit, one of the best. Uh, <laughs> most hilarious um, pieces of um, animation where characters are so beautifully drawn, you know, where a script is so wonderfully developed, where it's so imaginative and so playful. And, you know, we've got tools online that can help you to make your own kind of claymations, which somebody of five, four, six, seven, fifteen, seventy. Mm. can use um and so there's there's also education resources that are designed for schools but i think it's worth t um, parents having a look at them i think they they just help you to ask questions of your kids to help steer them and inspire them around how to do that and um, there's other other animation um support materials for say horton here's a who but there's also um you know we've got stuff in there about the beautiful um work that sean tan does um absolutely stunning um illustration and how that's then animated into a film um is is really beautiful and we've got stuff around wonderland alice in wonderland um but then, of course, you may have kids who are not so interested in straight film but who are absolutely fascinated with games, um, video games. And, again, video games, um, I'm just thinking, thinking again, um, a world that has provided um, video games for my sons at the moment um, who are teenagers and who are, you know, particularly immersed at the moment in Animal Crossing that's just come out. Oh, yes. Yeah. Such a beautiful game, um, but offers so many kind of social elements to it as well um, to communicate. But, you know, if you're interested in video games, um, coding, you know, using all sorts of online tools to, um, A, stretch your child's uh, abilities in this kind of more um, STEM based area, you know, technology and mathematics um, around um, using using these tools to build the kind of back end behind video games, but then also these other literacies that come on top, the creativity that come on top of building games, the storytelling, um, the visual design, the soundtrack, all these kind of different elements and layers that come into making a video game in the same way that you apply them um, in, a, in a filmmaking context. And uh, screenwriting for kids too. Yeah, well, again, storytelling, <laughs> you know, it comes down to, to script writing, to really think about 
um, how you use the written word um, and how you structure a story, how you pace a story. We've got um, fantastic uh, tools online that you can use to, to help your children understand, for example, how you do a dramatic script um, and, and really um, simple kind of um, structures that enable them to, to get into quite sophisticated um, script writing depending on, on the age of the child. Um, but being able to ma match a kind of professional format, um, understanding script formatting um, as, a, as a sort of base element, but then also understanding, and, and you know, what font do you use, for example, <laughs> to write your own script? <laughs> mm. um, you were awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia this year for service to performing screen and visual arts administration. Do your sons, uh, have they seen your on-screen work? <laughs> Pretty limited, I have to say. Um, my on-screen work was a few decades ago, mm. and I have to say I'm keeping it pretty quiet. Sorry. Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> what they have seen me in, though, is um, I had a starring role in an animated um, live animation um, kids series called Johnson and Friends. Wow. Um, and I, I was love Johnson up. and Friends. <laughs> Well, I was Macduff. Get out! <laughs> I'm so, oh, my God. I'm sorry that that's the most excited that I've been for a while. You I'm know, so, I, I can guess how old you are now. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I find that I have quite a number of fans. Um, yeah, so I showed my kids that when they, um, as they were little and they absolutely loved it. I mean, I actually think that it's a brilliant series. Talk about good writing. Um, <laughs> Oh, it was extraordinary. Can I just ask you a quick question? You know how they were? Were they giant, the the, the animated, the, the little things like puppets? Were they giant or were they little? No, they were giant. So <sighs> so I was the squeeze box and I was inside that. You were that physically puppet. inside it? Yeah. Oh. So it's, and, and we were in a bedroom which was built, uh, it was like four times to scale. So it was this gigantic set that was built and there was like a bed in it that was, you know, as big as my lounge room. Um, and Alfred, the hot water bottle, you might remember, lived under the bed. And so um, uh, Peter, um, Peter Brown, I think his name was, it was a long time ago I did this, um, Peter, who was such a hilarious comic actor who played the hot water bottle, was in this kind of weird foam mattress that was, <laughs> that was a, a, a sort of, it was a hot water bottle built out of foam that he kind of squeezed into and then he'd, you know, waddle around the room um, inside this gigantic hot water bottle. Yeah, it, it was a fantastic, fantastic series. But some of the other soap operas that I did, I'm, I'm keeping a bit quiet. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty mediocre acting going on there, I have to say. All right, oh. just lead with McDuff and you'll be fine. <laughs> So with with Acme closed, but you you still seem to be working hard, as hard as ever. Look, it's um, I mean we're shut at the moment um, to do this big uh, renewal project, and and I have to say it's it's strange timing. Um, unlike our peers who were in full mode, you know the museum, the library, art centre, national gallery, and so on. You know they they were all in full you know, audience-focused mode, um, we were already shut, um, which has made this this shutdown for ACME much easier. Um, but, you know, we're in the middle of a building project um, and doing a, you know, a $40 million transformation of our museum. Um, builders, because they're essential services, are still in the museum building away and we get sent photographs. 
Um, and, you know, as, as the social distancing and, and the lockdown relaxes, um, we'll gradually get back in there to finish off the project, um, which means that, you know, when we reopen, it's actually going to be an amazing time because we've got this incredible treasure um, that the government invested in, you know, two years ago. Mm. Um, that's going to be open to the public. You know, almost everything that we do is free. And we're going to have this wonderful museum that's about so much of the culture that is going to be, you know, informing and entertaining all of us as we're in we're in lockdown, the moving image coming to us through our screens. And we're going to be a museum exploring that for free in the middle of the Melbourne of Melbourne, you know, offering a an incredible kind of groundbreaking experience um, for our community. So I, I think I'm actually quite excited and inspired about the role that ACME is going to be able to play um, as we kind of reanimate uh, our city and our community after we're all been cocooned away for for a period of time. Absolutely, something to look forward to. Uh, in the meantime, the full gamut of Acme's online school holiday activities can be found at acme.net.au and we've been speaking with Director and CEO Katrina Sedgwick. Thanks, Katrina. Thank you. Thanks, Katrina. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.